0: Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our concluding episode uh, to Jane Austen's masterpiece, Emma, uh, and it's what a fun series it's been. Um, there have been no deaths, uh, unless you count Mrs. Churchill, but she was generally ungrieved and <laughs> There's no generational abuse, there's no hysteria, there's no ghosts, there's no violence of any kind. And You know, Christy, I didn't even realize that you people in the English department believed in books like this. This is the anti-Wuthering Heights.
0: (laughs) I know. We should. In truth, we try to avoid them if we can, but in this one case, we've made an exception. Next week, though, in our poetry supplement, we're going to discuss William Blake and His poem's about chimney sweepers, and they're pretty tragic. So hopefully we won't disappoint all those people that have come to know every English book is ending in death. (laughs) Or angst, at least.
1: Mm. Well, I guess I better enjoy the the, uh, comedic ending of Emma while it's available. Yes. Um, uh, And and if the definition of comedy is that we ended marriage, (laughs) which is funny, then Emma fits the bill. uh, There is not one... Not two, but three weddings at the end of this book. (laughs) And the book starts with a wedding. Uh, On week one, we met our first bride, Miss Taylor, who becomes uh, Miss Weston, or as Mr. Woodhouse would say, poor Miss Weston. (laughs) Uh, And we meet the Woodhouses and learned a little bit about Regency England. In uh, week two, we flew through 17 chapters of the book, meeting Emma and her family and being introduced to Harriet, the girl who will be Emma's matchmaking victim, and uh, who narrowly escapes matrimonial destruction. Uh, But we follow the near-miss disaster by looking at the silly love triangle constituted by Emma and Harriet and Mr. Elton, finishing with Mr. Elton's buffoonish confession of love to Emma, an all-time cringy, awkward (laughs) moment. We also spend a large part of the discussion uh, defending the claim that Austin is, among other things, making an argument about the nature of what Aristotle calls virtuous friendships, uh, claiming really that the most satisfying of relationships is between those who are intellectual equals. And last week we picked up with the uh, second love triangle, Emma, Frank Churchill, and Jane Fairfax. We drew a uh, parallel between Frank and Jane versus Emma and Knightley, and a secret love Uh, versus a hidden love, as you called it. We also met the entire town of Highbury, making the most fun of the ridiculous upstarts, Mr. and Mrs. Elton. They were funny. We finished by reading the end of Chapter 38, where we begin to see a little spark between Emma and Knightley, with the acknowledgement that they are not indeed brother and sister. No,
0: and it was a lot of ground, and I know it was quite a long episode, but we still left out so much. And today we're going to also leave out giant chunks. So there will still be much that we could say, but we will pick up with chapter 39 and race to the end, because what we don't want to miss are the weddings. these episodes um, have been long. But on the other hand, uh, we've tried to give you something different to look at every episode so that while you read the book, and unfortunately, I don't think you can skip this book. A lot of our books, maybe like the Machiavelli ones, you can listen to them, even if you haven't read them. But Emma is is harder. Uh, There's just so many things to say. And If we'd gone on for much longer talking, you would have turned us off like people do Miss (laughs) Bates. I know. So before we talk about Frank Churchill rescuing Harriet, eating strawberries at Donwell and Box Hill and all the other events of the story, I want to point out something that I read in an article by a, a woman named Janice Barkas. Uh, on Jane Austen's word choice uh, that I found so interesting and fascinating. I thought I would start with this. It's about her diction. Now, diction is just a fancy word for for people's choice of words. And we all have words that we tend to use, and that's called our idiolect. You don't even think about it, but every person has a unique style and We're unique based on our educational level, where we're from, our personality, those kinds of things. And no two people have the same idiolect. Uh, If you know someone really well, lots of times you even know who they are through a text just by their word choice or diction. Uh, This is something I don't know, Gary. What can you tell me about in terms of like the sociology side of it? How many words does an average person tend to use or really even know?
1: Well, uh, as you knew when you asked me that, (laughs) that's a tricky question. Um, The truth is the uh, majority of native English speakers know thousands of words, like upwards to 40,000 words by the time they're adults. And um, in fact, uh, linguists will tell us that even most five-year-olds can recognize almost 10,000 words. However, that's not the same as saying they use all those words. And most of us will use... Uh, we have a set of a thousand words that we use over and over, upwards of eighty nine percent of the of everything we say. And uh, I'm assuming this would be what you're calling our idiolect.
0: Yes, and although to be honest, idiolect isn't really just vocabulary; it's also speech patterns and pronunciation. But the reason I bring it up is because Austin does a lot with her characters in terms of giving each of them their own style. In a fun sort of way. Every character is distinctive, and she gives the community kind of a characteristic that separates it out from other communities, and we call that their sociolect. And this is what she's done just as an example. In the book Emma, Austin uses the word very 1,212 times. Somebody
1: counted that.
0: I know. Actually, a wow. computer did it. But
1: No, I thought maybe a might <laughs> did.
0: Yeah, well, probably that too. That's several per page. Now, before you just say, well, that's just the way Austin writes. That's her idiot that's not true. Only in the book Emma does Austin use that word that many times.
1: Uh-huh that's weird. Why is that?
0: Well, I know. I read some articles about it because I had the same question and there's lots of speculation. Obviously, nobody knows. Uh, At first, I thought she was trying to make fun of Emma, kind of like, valley patterns or things like we make fun of people from California. It's like, it's like, it's like, uh, but all of the characters use that word. And if you pay attention, and once I read that article, I started to notice they really do. Uh, Mrs. Elton, before they decide they don't like her, uh, they don't say she's an unpleasing woman. She's a very, very pleasing young woman. She's very nicely dressed. And when Harriet responds that she's not attached or she is attached to Mr. Elton, and she's not just attached. She's very attached to him. You can look at every page, any number of characters, and you'll see it and you'll think, oh, wow, that's really very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Woodhouse, listen to him. I am very glad I did think of that. It was very lucky, for I would not have had poor James think of himself slighted. And I'm sure he will make a very good servant. He just That's just how they talk in this little town. <laughs>
1: Well, couldn't you just argue that Austin is just giving people some personality? I mean, uh, one of the ways, you know, immediately Miss Bates is talking is through all the crazy punctuation and the endless barrage of you knows.
0: (laughs) Well, that's certainly true of Miss Bates. And she has one of the most distinctive ideolics in the whole book. And I've thought about, you know, how many actresses would love to play the role of Miss Bates. But Barkas argues, and I think it's worth mentioning here, that she kind of does this Uh, to center around a particular theme. And it's the theme that I want us to think about as we end the book, the theme of isolation and confinement. Austin goes to great lengths to create a small community, a small world, and even its own language. Because Emma, uniquely Emma, is never allowed to leave this place. And although the first statement in the entire book that says that Emma has nothing to vex her, through Austen's unique narrative technique, by the end of the novel, very few people believe that's the case. She does have things to vex her. In fact, many of the faults that we find in Emma that annoy us, her snobbishness, her meddling in people's lives, are in large part a result of this vexation that she is very isolated.
1: And why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think it's because of her father. Austin's portrayal of Mr. Woodhouse is unusual. First of all, he's very dear to everyone. Where they will make fun of Miss Bates and Mrs. Elton, nobody makes fun of Mr. Woodhouse, even though... He comes across as very selfish and his demands are very irritating and his habits annoying. You would think that a person like that, no one would want to be around at all. But instead, he's, and I quote, tender at heart.
1: <laughs> uh, well, he I think he clearly has what we would call hypochondria. Um, although I know it's not scientific to diagnose fictional characters. <laughs>
0: I guess not.
1: But um, he does use his illnesses in either real or perceived illness, to control the actions of everyone in his world and especially Emma. But he does it to everyone, uh, you know, dictating when people come and go and what they eat and how many are even invited to parties. And his best friend in town, Mr. Perry, is quoted all the time and often misquoted, we notice from the very beginning, uh, when we have the discussion about eating cake.
0: Yes. And Emma, on the other hand, is entirely devoted to him. It's the driving focus of her life and is what is causing her isolation. She can't marry because she can't leave her father, according to her own admission. And I thought this quote when I read it, you know, in the story, kind of out of place. But she says this, I beg you not to talk of the sea. It makes me envious and miserable. I who have never seen it. Why can't she go to the sea? for modern readers, especially female readers, it makes us sympathetic. We empathize with her in the many instances that we see this kind of thing happening where she can't go beyond the shrubs. And it makes us angry. At least it makes me angry at her father.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there's a couple of worldview issues here that that I think are important to consider. And uh, the first that comes to mind is the Christian worldview that's embedded in this novel, although not overtly. And of course, Christianity is not the only worldview like this. Uh, in fact, almost all traditional religious worldviews share this value. But Emma demonstrates a sacred commitment to one's parents. I mean, it's in the Ten Commandments honor thy father and thy mother, among other sacred texts, also. And, and of course, um, <laughs> Our modern secular worldview reverses this and sees it as the duty of the father to honor the child <laughs> in the 21st century, but uh, that's a fairly recent reversal, and most cultures throughout time saw the caring for one's parents as a sacred duty uh, really almost above all else, And. Uh, Emma has no mother and she is the sole caretaker of her father and, she, and has been for years. And she has adopted this responsibility and will not forsake it for anything, no matter the cost. And even in Knightley's words, it is her duty. And so his hypochondria is going to confine her to Highbury.
0: Well, that's the thing. And in my mind, if I were her friend, it would drive me nuts to see somebody trapped like that. I don't care how tender they are at their heart.
1: Yeah, I mean, in our minds, uh, yeah, for sure. But that brings me to the second issue of worldview, how we see mental illness uh, today is very different from back then. Back then, uh, there was a consensus that mental health was actually connected to physical health, and of course it is, but they understood it slightly differently than we do. Um, If you were in a, quote, bad humor that they was, use
0: that word all the time. They did. They
1: did it in that time period. That was a physical issue, and there were literally four humors that they believed in medically. Mr. Woodhouse was a nervous man, uh, that meant his nervous system was malfunctioning. This condition is related to excessive black bile and obstruction of the spleen. <laughs>
0: Oh, goodness. Yeah.
1: So if you look at medical books from the time period, they actually say that uh, hypochondria is an obstruction of the spleen by thickened and distempered blood, um, extending itself really often uh, to the liver and other parts. So uh, to abandon or blame someone for having hypochondria would be the equivalent of blaming someone for having hemophilia or arthritis. <laughs> it would just <laughs> Not seem cruel their fault. to do. Right. But, of course, in modern times, we would refer to Mr. Woodhouse. As suffering from any number of anxiety disorders.
0: Yes. Well, and Frank Churchill's mo- mother seems to have this going on too, and no one ever takes her seriously up until the point where she actually dies. So who knows what this woman had, but having those ideas in our mind, when we get to the climax of the book, things begin to make a lot more sense as to why nightly And Emma getting together is such an ordeal, and really almost never really happens.
1: Well, and and that's going to bring us to the end of the ball, where we see the romantic connection between these two kind of begin.
0: It begins, and then it takes a back seat (laughs) to all (laughs) of this silly drama that comes from these funny characters, Harriet and Frank Churchill and Mrs. Elton, and there's just all these different... You know, plot little things going on. Harriet gets assaulted by gypsies, and lo and behold, who just comes out? <appears> Frank Churchill to the rescue. It takes her up and sweeps her back into the house. And then it seems Mr. Elton snubbing her that night at the party and her getting rescued by Knightley was enough to finally cure Harriet of being in love with him. But those events, plus the fact that he's married, have led Harriet to give up not just her infatuation, but all the treasures she's been hiding that used to belong to him, including (laughs) a pencil stub. stub.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of Frank Churchill, um, there's also the scene where apparently he asks a question about Mr. Perry, uh, revealing that he knew private information that wasn't commonly known. And uh, as readers, we can tell that he must have obviously heard it from Jane, but he claims he must have dreamed it. Uh, While they were playing a word game, he seems to apologize to Jane by writing out the word blunder and then perhaps the word pardon, although we as readers don't actually see that one.
0: I know. He's so cavalier. Pardon, blunder. Those are good words for Frank Churchill because to me, uh, what is emerging is a comparison. And this Comparison really goes all the way to the end of the book. Between Frank and Emma, they're both really spoiled rich kids. But Emma, although snobby, does seem to be guided by a sense of duty where Frank doesn't. He's introduced not doing right by his father. And now, it, to me, it doesn't look like he's doing right by his you know secret fiancé. And all of this leaves Jane Fairfax very upset. Frank Churchill, just openly flirting with Emma right in front of Jane, is telling things in public that Jane has told him in confidence, and he just doesn't seem to be careful or even concerned about the injuries that he's causing. This takes us to the adventure at Donwell Abbey, which is a strawberry evening activity, a contrivance by the silly Mrs. Elton. She wants to get all the best people in town to hang out around her. Uh, but while they're there, Mrs. Elton, in order to prove that she's somebody, has taken it upon herself to find a governess job for Jane Fairfax. <laughs> oh,
1: how beneficent. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, really, in the words of Emma, that left Jane looking vexed. And uh, this is where the word. Mystery doesn't really seem to fit this novel. There are there's all these disconnected events that don't go together and and I, as a first time reader, get a little confused as to what it all means. I mean, I didn't understand the word game. I didn't understand why Jane seems so upset most of the time, and here she's so upset she actually leaves the party on foot, uh, begging Emma to keep her leaving a secret for as long as possible. And then, of course, Frank Churchill randomly showing up and in a foul mood. I mean, none of that made sense.
0: No, it's really all unexplained. And then we have this big takedown on Box Hill, which also is unexplained. This scene is really where Emma hits her lowest moment, if you want to think about all the things that she's done to be honorable or dishonorable in the whole book. And in terms of her personal growth... This is where we see a turning point, a real turning point in her from which we become convinced she will not return. And although this isn't really considered to be the climax of the novel, most critics will say that the climax of the novel is the moment that Emma realizes she's in love with Knightley. And I get that. And I don't even disagree with that. But for me, the Box Hill scene is very important and perhaps is that climactic moment for Emma. Because here at Box Hill, Emma comes into her own. When she viscerates and just destroys the helpless and kind-hearted Miss Bates for no reason, and then nightly shames her by talking to her about it and bringing it all to the surface, she fundamentally really changes, unlike the, you know, confessions of change that she's done in the past. And for me, it's a moment where she really takes command of who she wants to be in her own life. And it makes me really like her. That's
1: part of the growing up. And and on the surface, it absolutely makes no sense that she should attack Miss Bates. I mean, Miss Bates, of course, is uh, her normal, slightly annoying self, But she never is anything but kind and grateful, and and especially to Emma.
0: No, but like all of us, when we get in a bad mood and we're put on the defensive, isn't it true that it's not that hard to pick on the weaker links? And this is what Emma resorts to here. And really why I think she comes into her own. The entire Highbury entourage is out on this excursion to this place that they call Box Hill, and you can read the puns into that if you want, everyone seems a little bit off. No one is having fun. When we get to Frank Churchill's letter at the end and we have this full disclosure of what's been going on behind the scenes this whole time, it makes sense, but we don't understand it while we're reading it. So what we see as readers is Frank Churchill and really the characters are seeing this too is extremely flirtatious with Emma and she joined the attention, you know, flirts back on the surface. It's playful, but really it's one of those things where the surface level is one thing, but it doesn't take much to dig under the surface and realize it's not what's going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what's really happening is Emma and Frank, are having a power struggle uh, for no better reason than they seem just to be bored. Uh, the whole conversation is worth picking apart, but we really don't have time to do that. But I want to point out how two intelligent people <laughs> verbally duel each other.
0: I know. It starts with Frank thanking Emma for inviting him, suggesting he wasn't going to come. Emma counters by attacking him. So she kind of starts it. She says this, yes, yes. You were very cross, and I do not know what about, except that you were too late for the best strawberries. I was a kinder friend than you have deserved, but you were humble. You begged hard to be commanded to come.
1: Don't say I was cross. I was fatigued. The heat overcame me.
0: It's hotter today.
1: Not to my feelings. I am perfectly comfortable today.
0: You are comfortable because you are under command.
1: Your command, yes.
0: Uh, perhaps I intended you to say so, but I meant self-command. Now, this is where Frank begins to really dominate Emma, making her angry because she cannot regain control over this argument. And this is what he does. She said something like she does here, and then he changes it to mean that she said something that she didn't actually say. He puts words in her mouth. He begins to put words in her mouth over and over again until finally he claims in front of everyone that Emma would like to hear what everyone was thinking. Emma replies, oh no, no, no. upon no account in the world. It is the vast, last very thing that I would stand the brunt of just now. Let me hear rather anything than what you are thinking of. But he doesn't stop. He keeps on and he goes on to say this. Here, read those lines for us.
1: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am ordered by Miss Woodhouse to say that she waives her right of knowing exactly what you may all be thinking of and only requires something very entertaining from each of you in a general way. Here are seven of you, besides myself, who she is pleased to say am very entertaining already, and she only demands from each of you either one thing very clever, be it prose or verse, original or repeated. Or two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed, and she engages to laugh heartily at them all.
0: Now, here's the kicker. Emma, who is never told what to do by anyone, is being pushed around, and she's feeling it. She's very uncomfortable. All of this that he is saying, she did not say. She did not order him to do anything. She didn't say he was entertaining. She didn't commit herself to laugh at anything. The only problem here is she doesn't know how to handle Frank Churchill. He is bullying her, and he keeps undermining her. So for the first and last time, I really believe she'll never do this again. Instead of attacking him, she picks on the weaker target, Miss Bates. It's one of those moments when everyone feels the sting. Gary, read Miss Bates's lines, but you have to use your best Spencer acts.
1: <laughs> let me see what I can conjure up. Oh very well. Then I need not be uneasy. Three things very dull indeed. That will do just for me, you know. I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? Do not you think I shall?
0: And then Emma replies this Ah, ma'am, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me. You will be quite limited as to number. Only three at once.
1: (laughs) Of course, Miss Bates is immediately shamed, and she turns to Knightley and says, Ah, well, to be sure, yes, I see what she means, and I will try to hold my tongue. I must make myself very disagreeable, or she would not have said such a thing to an old friend.
0: Ouch. And of course, everyone feels it. Even the Elton's get up and walk off. It's Oh, That's bad. I know. And later on, Knightley addresses this issue with her. He says a lot of things. But the bottom line is, he reminds her that she bullied someone who was defenseless. And I love what her thoughts say. She says this. Well, the text says this. And remember, we're going in and out of her mind. We've told you this before. She was vexed beyond what could have been expressed, almost beyond what she could conceal. Never had she felt so agitated, mortified, grieved at any circumstance in her life. She was most forcibly struck. The truth of his representation, there was no denying. She felt it at her heart. How could she have been so brutal, so cruel to Miss Bates? And at the end of this chapter, there are tears running down Emma's cheeks, although I will say, don't let the tears fool you because this is the moment that Emma gets her power and she will never be dominated again.
1: (laughs) Yes. And unlike the many times Emma has vowed to reform her ways, but we were left unconvinced. I mean, no one leaves chapter 43 without feeling the shift in her posture this time. The little girl is gone and the lady is emerging.
0: I agree. And everything about the end of the novel is Emma cleaning up, all the messes she has made by living in this reactionary way to everything that went on in her world. She wants to clean up the Miss Bates mess, which she does immediately by trying to do the right thing by Miss Bates. She is forced to clean up the fake romance (laughs) with fake Churchill, of course, when he admits his true love for Jane, and she admits that she really never loved him at all. But then we get to Harriet. Remember, the story starts with Emma breaking up this relationship between Harriet and a man that she clearly loves, Robert Martin. At the end of the novel, Harriet confesses that she actually has fallen in love with Knightley. Poor Harriet. Three loves. Uh, in one year. <laughs> uh, and she has reasons to believe that Knightley loves her back. When Emma hears harriet's confession she is floored the text reads this till now she was threatened with its loss emma had never known how much of her happiness depended on being first with mr knightley first in interest and affection satisfied that it was so and feeling it her due she had enjoyed it without reflection and only in the dread of being supplanted found how inexpressibly important it had been She had been first with him for many years past. She had not deserved it. She had often been negligent or persevering, sliding his advice, willfully opposing him, insensible of half his merits, and quarreling with him because he would not acknowledge her false and insolent estimate of her own, but still, from family attachment and habit and thorough excellence of mind, he had loved her and watched over her from a girl with an endeavor to improve her and an anxiety of her doing right, which no other creature had at all shared. In spite of all her faults, she knew she was dear to him. Might she not say, very dear?
1: (laughs) Very, very. And of course, this is where, um, although we're reading the narrator going into Emma's brain, we once again start to disagree with her understanding of what's going on. Uh, Because in one sense, What she is saying is true. It's likely she had taken for granted this relationship with him, uh, but he had done the same. I mean, Knightley, although he's 12 years older, he's not perfect. And in fact, he's not perfect now. And uh, he's run off to his brother's house. He only comes back when he hears that Frank and Jane are engaged and he's worried that Emma is upset. And in fact, he's uh, actually done the same thing that Emma has done. He's taken her for granted. And his profession of love is sincere, and his marriage proposal spontaneous. And I know I'm a dude, but uh, I find these lines pretty heartfelt and pretty romantic. So, Christy, I think these lines are worth reading.
0: Well, they are, and we should read. And I want to point out before you read them that... Because she does love him, she's willing to let him have Harriet if that's what he wants. <laughs> it is a bit of a little bit of a misunderstanding there at the uh, at this point.
1: <laughs> mm, a little bit of martyrdom. I'm not sure she wants to go through with.
0: Well, but... probably not. But that moment, she feels it.
1: <laughs> well, let me tell you what what Mister Knightley says. Okay. I cannot make speeches, Emma. He soon resumed, and in a tone of such sincere, decided, intelligible tenderness. I was tolerably convincing. If I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. But you know what I am. You hear nothing but truth from me. I have blamed you and lectured you, and you have borne it as no other woman in England would have borne it. Bear with the truths I would tell you now, dearest Emma, as well as you have borne with them. The manner, perhaps, may have as little to recommend them. God knows. I have been a very indifferent lover." But you understand me, yes, you see, you understand my feelings, and will return them if you can. At present, I ask only to hear once, to hear your voice.
0: And of course, he asked to hear her voice, and she's absolutely speechless.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that can happen in that situation.
0: I guess we get two pages, really, of just her thoughts. And interestingly enough, and unlike Emma, I guess, in the whole book, Austin does not tell us her reply. The text said that she spoke. What did she say? Just what she ought, of course. A lady always does. (laughs) That's how Austin puts it. But she doesn't tell us what it was. Emma is allowed privacy, even from the audience. And of course, the next Couple of chapters is just about the unraveling of all the mysteries and all the playful plot twists that Austin has cleverly and delightfully woven for us Frank Churchill in a letter that lasts for over a chapter, reveals about the secret engagement and all the angst he's caused Jane and the fact that that day walking back from the strawberry patch, she broke up with him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess that explains why he's so cross and perhaps why he was so flirtatious with Emma the next day. I
0: guess it does. And then, of course, we get to the grand finale, the birth of a baby girl and then not one, As you said, not two, but three weddings. The first, Harriet and Robert Martin. That's fitting. Emma had almost derailed it, but she didn't. The second, Jane and Frank. That Mrs. Churchill would have derailed had she not, to everyone's delight, (laughs) (laughs) delight. suddenly and tragically died. Mm. (laughs) There's a legacy. The third, a wedding Mr. Woodhouse tried very hard and almost derailed Mr. Woodhouse is not happy about Emma marrying, and even with Mr. Knightley agreeing to move in with them, poor guy, (laughs) instead of Emma moving to his house, Mr. Woodhouse just cannot adjust to the idea of Emma being married.
1: There's a word for this, okay? I mean, (laughs) this codependency uh, really seems almost more than anyone should ever have to agree to. Poor girl. Cannot imagine this working well.
0: <laughs> well, fortunately, we don't have to know what happens happily ever after. All we know is just at the end, when everything looks perfect, they almost have to call off Emma's wedding. But they're saved by a poultry house incident. By a poultry
1: house <laughs> incident. Okay.
0: Only Austin uh, would dream this up. But this is how the book concludes.
1: In this state of suspense, they were befriended, not by any sudden illumination of Mr. Woodhouse's mind or any wonderful change of his nervous system, but by the operation of the same system in another way. Mrs. Weston's poultry house was robbed one night of all her turkeys, (laughs) evidently by the ingenuity of man. Other poultry yards in the neighborhood also suffered pilfering was housebreaking to Mr. Woodhouse's fears. He was very uneasy, and but for the sense of his son-in-law's protection would have been under wretched alarm every night of his life. The strength, resolution, and the presence of mind of the Mr. Knightleys commanded his fullest dependence, while either of them protected him and his heartfield was safe. But Mr. John Knightley must be in London again by the end of the first week in November. The result of this distress was that, with a much more voluntary, cheerful consent than his daughter had ever presumed to hope for at the moment, she was able to fix her wedding day, and Mr. Elton was called on, within a month from the marriage of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Martin, to join the hands of Mr. Knightley and Miss Woodhouse. The wedding was very much like other weddings, where the parties have no taste for finery or parade and Mrs. Elton, from the particulars detailed by her husband, thought it all extremely shabby, and very inferior to her own. Very little white satin, very few lace veils a most pitiful business. Selina would stare when she heard of it. But in spite of these deficiencies, the wishes, the hopes, the confidence, the predictions of the small band of true friends who witnessed the ceremony were fully answered in the perfect happiness of the union. Well, there you have it. Eden has been restored. Everyone is paired with their virtuous Aristotle type friend. <laughs> Aristotle would be proud.
0: I know. Austin calls it perfect happiness of the union. It's what makes her books delightful. As Shakespeare would say, Alls well that ends well.
1: (laughs) Well, it is a community of imperfect people, no doubt, and that's okay. That's the charm of it. They're they're integrated individuals, each being their own person. Their foibles Uh, it makes for annoyances, but but that's what community is about. So we leave happy and undisturbed as we started.
0: Do you really think so? Are you a Janeite?
1: I don't claim to be a Janeite, but I will admit that uh, after I got in the book, I really did enjoy Jane Austen's writing.
0: Well, to speak in Highbury, I am most very, very glad you did.
1: <laughs> Me too. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to give us a, a rating on social media or your podcast app like Podbean or Spotify or Apple and If you're in the business world, you know the internet bosses that reign from on high. They like us better if you do those kind of things. And stop in and see us on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. But uh, most importantly, share an episode with a friend. That's how we grow.
0: Peace out.